We have just a few lessons left in our patriarch study, and we are certainly in a dramatic part of the book of Genesis. In our last lesson, Genesis 37 through 40, told us of Joseph's humiliation. We noted that Joseph is a type, a picture of Christ. He was beloved by his father, rejected by his brothers, betrayed for 20 pieces of silver, and seemingly died, or so his father thought, and was then brought to life again as a triumphant king instead of a suffering servant. Additionally, like Christ, Joseph forgave and saved his brothers. This week's lesson is called Joseph's Exaltation. Joseph's exaltation occurred when he was 30 years of age. But first, he was humbled under God's mighty and loving hand. Then God exalted him. And in this, Joseph's life gives us a full picture of an important teaching in the Bible. Peter summarized that teaching this way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. The Bible teaches that those who are humbled will be exalted. This is a very different concept from the necessity of self-preservation and self-exaltation that the world embraces. According to the Bible, the way up is down. Joseph's life beautifully illustrates this for us. It's another way in which he seems to be a type of Christ. Just as the Bible tells us to expect to share in Christ's humiliation and his suffering, it also teaches that we should expect to share in Christ's exaltation. Our final exaltation will occur when we're glorified at Christ's return. At that time, we'll be entirely free from the effects of sin and perfected to the state God created us to enjoy. Christ's humiliation necessarily preceded his exaltation. The same is true for us. God humbles his servants in order to ultimately exalt them. Now, at the end of chapter 20, we're left to imagine the tremendous disappointment Joseph must have felt day after day for the two full years his imprisonment continued. But in fact, God caused the cupbearer to remember Joseph's abilities at just the right moment the time when his interpretation would result in his exaltation in Egypt. God planned to exalt Joseph, not only for Joseph's benefit, you see, but also for the benefit of many other people. Chapter 41 begins by telling us of Pharaoh's two dreams. Seven healthy cows emerged first, but seven skinny, ugly cows swallowed these up. And the second dream was related. It, in this case, was about grain, which, like the cows, was another essential to Egypt's prosperity. Seven thin, scorched heads of grain devoured seven healthy, full-grain heads of grain. We're told that Pharaoh contacted his magicians and wise men, 
for help in interpreting the dreams. Now, this was a class of priests who, it was believed, possessed secret arts. One of their many responsibilities included the interpretation of dreams. But on this occasion, none of these men could interpret Pharaoh's dream for him. The dilemma caused Pharaoh's chief cupbearer to suddenly remember Joseph and his ability and recommend him to Pharaoh. What a change of events for Joseph. Pharaoh surely anticipated that Joseph would use this opportunity to impress him. But Joseph, we see, came out of prison a humble man. He told Pharaoh, I cannot do it, but God will. Literally, his words were, it is not in me. God will give an answer. Joseph had learned humility and God dependence through suffering. Now, in Egypt, Pharaoh was considered to be a god. Yet here in his statement, Joseph told Pharaoh, essentially, of the existence of one who transcended the realm of the gods, who transcended the realm of nature and even the realm of humankind. His simple statement challenged Pharaoh's worldview. According to Joseph's worldview, Pharaoh was impotent with regard to world events. All he could do was to prepare for the events God, the mover and shaper of history, superintended. Joseph then explained the meaning of the dreams. Seven years of plenty in Egypt were going to be followed by seven years of famine, and the famine would be devastating. But we see that Joseph didn't stop at merely interpreting Pharaoh's dreams for him. He boldly went on to give Pharaoh advice about how to prepare for the famine, urging him to collect food during the years of plenty to be held in reserve for the years of famine. Furthermore, he advised Pharaoh to appoint a discerning and wise man to be put in charge of the land and to oversee the food collection. Well, Pharaoh was so impressed that he gave orders that Joseph be made prime minister of Egypt. He also gave Joseph his signet ring, which would have allowed Joseph the right to dictate the laws of the land by Pharaoh's own authority. And he dressed Joseph in a manner that was suitable to his honorable position, paraded him through the city to announce his new position to all, and then gave Joseph an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. Taking an Egyptian wife would have naturalized Joseph as a citizen. Furthermore, having a wife from the priestly family, as Asenath was, further enhanced Joseph's power. Well, we learned that Asenath bore Joseph two sons, and Joseph gave them Hebrew names. Their names give insight into Joseph's frame of mind. Joseph's first son was named Manasseh. Joseph said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. Clearly, Joseph deeply suffered by being separated from his family. The name also indicates that Joseph was experiencing emotional healing from the trauma. The fact that he was able to stop missing his family so terribly indicates that Joseph was deeply comforted by his new family. He surely told Asenath about the Lord. So we see a picture here of a happy home life. Joseph's second son was named Ephraim. At his naming, Joseph said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. 
No, it's not as though Joseph could ever forget his suffering entirely. Here he's mentioning it at the birth and the naming of, of both of his sons. Yet again, his mention of fruitfulness indicates Joseph began to see Egypt from a dual perspective. It was the land of his suffering and also the land of his fruitfulness. Joseph was beginning to see his boyhood dreams of exaltation fulfilled. Later, Joseph told his brothers God had sent him to Egypt ahead of them. So it seems that once Joseph was exalted, he began to see God's purpose in sending him to Egypt. And here, rather than running back to his father now that he potentially could have, he stayed put with his new family and trusted God's timing and will for his life. Well, at the end of the seven years, the famine began. Joseph opened the storehouses of grain and sold it to the Egyptians. Chapter 41, verse 52 tells us that all the world, a figure of speech for the surrounding countries, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Joseph's one life impacted many he saved the lives of the Egyptians and the lives of those from many other nations. In this, we see a partial fulfillment of God's promise to the patriarchs that God would bless the world through them. Many people benefited from Joseph's humiliation and his exaltation. So that brings us to our first principle. God's work in one life is never for the benefit of that person alone. God's work in one life is never for the benefit of that person alone. Certainly all who receive Jesus benefit from his work. But have you considered that, likewise, you're to be a blessing to many people? That's God's will for our lives. God didn't save us only for our own benefit. We are to be witnesses of Christ's work in our lives. We're to share with and serve God's people. We're to help the needy. So can I ask, who is directly benefiting from God's work in you at this time in your life? And then let's consider this principle in reverse. You and I are also impacted by God's work in the life of others. God very well may be allowing someone close to you to experience the natural consequences of his or her own bad choices, and you may be suffering as a result. How would your attitude change toward this person and toward your circumstances if you realize that God's work in their life is also part of his plan to reshape you? In one swift moment, Joseph had gone from being a prisoner in Egypt to lord over Egypt. His exaltation wasn't only for his own benefit. And as we see, his father's household was among the many who benefited. In chapter 42, the scene shifts from Egypt, where, as I said, those seven years of plenty had passed. Now uh, the scene shifts to Canaan. Joseph had been gone from Canaan for 20 years at this point. And we learn that the severe famine stretched beyond Egypt and Jacob's family was suffering because of, this, because of it. Jacob asked his sons why they'd hesitated to go to Egypt for grain. Their hesitation gives us the first of many insights into the guilty stamp 
on their consciences. To consider going to Egypt was to be reminded of Joseph, whom they'd sent there many years earlier. Although they seemed to have assumed that he must be dead by now, they still would have preferred to avoid any and all things that reminded them of their guilt. Now let's keep this in mind because it's important to remember with regard to Joseph's testing of his brothers. Jacob, we're told, wouldn't allow Benjamin, Rachel's only remaining son, to go with them out of fear of losing him as he'd lost Joseph. So his ten remaining sons left for Egypt. And when they arrived, they didn't recognize Joseph. He'd grown from a boy into a man. Furthermore, he was dressed, shaven, and spoke as an Egyptian. Although Joseph was in charge of selling grain, he surely had many supervisors who assisted him in such a great task. It seems pretty providential, don't you think, that Joseph was present when his own brothers appeared? After correctly interpreting the dreams of the chief baker, the chief cupbearer, and Pharaoh, I think Joseph undoubtedly was all the more convinced that his own dreams would eventually be fulfilled. Increasingly, they were. We see here the first thing we're told about his encounter with his brothers is that they bowed down to them, chapter 42, verse 6, just as they had in his dream so many years earlier. It may seem surprising that Joseph concealed his identity from his brothers, pretending to be a stranger and speaking harshly to them. Did you wonder what was his motivation? Later in the account, we discover that Joseph's heart toward his brothers was actually very tender. So the purpose in his treatment of them couldn't have been revenge. It seems that Joseph was wisely testing his brothers to see if God had transformed their characters. The tests, you see, were intended to stir up their guilt and give Joseph the opportunity to see their response. The test revealed how and if they had already changed while also creating an opportunity for change. Joseph's desired end was reconciliation. Clearly, he was far more than just a guy who could interpret dreams. This was a man of great wisdom and insight. Well, Joseph first tested his brothers by accusing them of being spies. Do you recall that one of the reasons Joseph's brothers had despised him was because of the bad report he brought their father about some of them? Now, Jacob had sent him to them for this very purpose of gaining information about his brothers. It wasn't Joseph's idea to spy on his brothers. It was his father's plan. But when his brothers saw him approaching, they couldn't bear the idea that he'd return to their father with a bad report. Joseph's accusation that his brothers were spies probably caused them to feel the sting of the same accusation they'd leveled against him so many years earlier. Joseph's brothers defended themselves by offering information about their family. Their revelation of this information allowed Joseph to put them to a second test. He told them they could prove their innocence by bringing their youngest brother to him in Egypt. Joseph said he'd allow one of them to return and get this youngest brother while the rest remained in prison. Through three days of confinement, they surely experienced just a little of the terror Joseph experienced all those years earlier when he was thrown into the cistern. Cistern, 
It seems that over these three days, Joseph thought about his plan and ultimately decided to keep only one brother in custody and allow the other nine to return. By keeping just one, the brothers' consciences were reminded that they sent Joseph alone into Egypt, and they were forced to consider the misery of his isolation. Joseph's revised plan also ensured his father's growing household continued to be cared for, and that Jacob suffered the heartache of losing only one additional son rather than all of them. The brothers had no control over the powerful ruler of Egypt, Joseph, this new powerful ruler of Egypt. They saw what he required of them as divine retribution, saying, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this disaster has come on us. After over 20 years, they'd still not stopped feeling guilty about what they'd done. Joseph chose to keep Simeon imprisoned. We're left without information to imagine his reasons for selecting Simeon. But Joseph's third test essentially came down to this. Would the brothers forsake Simeon in Egypt as they'd forsaken Joseph? Joseph sent the other nine brothers home with grain for their families. Unbeknown to them, he also put the silver with which they'd paid for the grain back in their sacks, probably intending that the grain might be a gift. However, when they discovered the silver, their hearts sank, verse 28 tells us, and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this God has done to us? Their guilty consciences were further exposed. Surely they must have dreaded the conversation they'd have with their father upon their return. In addition to explaining Simeon's absence and the returned silver, they also had to tell him they couldn't trade any further in Egypt without bringing Benjamin back with them. Well, in chapter 43, we learn that eventually the food Jacob's sons obtained in Egypt ran out. And this time we see Judah exerting leadership. He appealed to his father on the basis of their dire need. Then Judah made a remarkable statement in verse 9. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Now, last week, we learned that Genesis 38 portrays Judah as a selfish man unwilling to take responsibility for his own daughter-in-law. This week, we see that Judah had changed. So the brothers were given permission to leave for Egypt with Benjamin in tow. Upon their arrival, much to their surprise, the brothers were taken immediately to Joseph's private residence. They wrongly assumed they were being blamed for not leaving payment on their first trip. But apparently Joseph's steward was aware of all Joseph was doing, for he ignored their defense and claimed that he had indeed received their silver on their previous journey. Then he brought Simeon out to rejoin them. Oh, we can only imagine Simeon's relief. At Joseph's arrival, again, the brothers prostrated themselves before him. 
Noticing Benjamin among them, verse 40 tells us that Joseph was deeply moved and hurried out to look for a place to weep. It seems that Joseph would have revealed himself to them. But although they'd not abandoned Simeon, Joseph's testing of them was still incomplete. After serving them a feast, Joseph released his brothers to return to Canaan, once again giving them the food they'd come to purchase, and once again returning their silver in their sacks. All 11 brothers, Simeon and Benjamin included, left Egypt. To them, this must have been a moment of celebration. They'd believe they'd cleared themselves of their ac the accusation of being spies. They believed from that point forward they'd be free to trade in Egypt. And perhaps to their greatest relief of all, they were bringing Benjamin back safely to their father as promised. But Joseph had arranged yet another test for his brothers. Chapter 44 tells us that he had his personal cup, a chalice that was a symbol of his authority, placed in Benjamin's sack. He allowed his brothers to travel a short distance from the city before he sent his steward after them, doubtless accompanied by soldiers, to accuse them of the theft. Completely surprised, Joseph's brothers vowed that any of them found with the cup would be put to death and the rest of them would become Joseph's slaves. Joseph's steward appeared to concede to their suggestion, but then actually amended their condemnation, saying only the one to blame would become the slave and the rest would be free. Having left Joseph's house that very morning with such a feeling of relief, the brothers then experienced the greatest calamity of all. The cup was discovered in Benjamin's sack. None of them attempted a defense. Each realized that God had unveiled their true guilt, which they'd carried many years through these seemingly unfortunate circumstances. They'd considered themselves guilty, even though they knew they had no role in the theft. When they returned to appear before Joseph, their only response was, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Joseph then pushed the test to its limits by refusing to keep them as his slaves. He insisted that only Benjamin would remain with him. The rest of you, he said, go back to your father in peace. It was clear to Joseph from what his brothers had told him that his father favored Benjamin as he himself had been favored. So this was the basis of his final test. Would his brothers be as eager to get rid of the favored Benjamin as they'd been to get rid of Joseph years earlier? Would they gladly make their escape and abandon their father's new favorite to enslavement in Egypt exactly as they'd done to Joseph? And Joseph's words, return to your father in peace, couldn't have been a weightier reminder that their sin wasn't only against Joseph, but also against their father. There'd been no peace in Jacob's household since the day they'd sold Joseph into slavery, something Joseph may have only suspected. Jacob had refused to be consoled over his loss, we learned. 
the brothers fully understood that they could never return to their father in peace without Benjamin. At that moment, Judas stepped forward and delivered a most moving speech in which he repeatedly showed deep concern for his father's well-being and unwillingness to leave Benjamin behind. Judah made an offer that really proved to Joseph that he was a changed man. He asked Joseph to keep him in Benjamin's place. The previously self-centered Judah had become a self-sacrificing man. Well, Joseph's tests successfully moved his brothers to unveil their guilt and act with integrity. The principle for us is that an important test of our humility is our willingness to put others' needs ahead of our own. We learn this from Judah, and it's our second principle. An important test of our humility is our willingness to put others' needs ahead of our own. Man, I'll be the first to admit that my selfishness is often revealed by my impatience with others. It becomes especially evident when I'm driving or faced to wait in a line. I hate waiting in line. And I have to regularly remind myself that my time is my own and that each of the people I encounter, whether in line or other drivers on the road, each of them have needs as well. Sometimes our selfishness shows up as spiritual pride, the worst kind of pride. How might pride be keeping you from putting the needs of others first? Judah, a formerly self-centered man, was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his brothers and his father. What kind of a personal sacrifice is God currently asking you to make? for the welfare of someone else. Well, God honored the humble Judah by recording his unselfish act for all of eternity in the scriptures. And as we'll see in the next lesson, in Jacob's deathbed blessing, he exalted Judah. Most importantly, God ultimately granted Judah the honor of being the forefather of Jesus Christ. He who was humbled was exalted. Well, in Genesis 45, we discovered that with the guilt of Joseph's brothers, the guilt that Joseph's brothers carried within them so long finally unveiled and their unwillingness to accept their consequences, the consequences of their actions, Joseph was finally free to reveal his identity to them. In verses 4 through 8, Joseph's words prove that he'd already forgiven his brother, his brothers, his test hadn't been um, vindictive. Exposing guilt and offering forgiveness were prerequisites to having their relationship properly restored. Joseph's words on this occasion also reveal his theology. He told his brothers that while they had sold him into slavery, God was the one behind the scenes working through their evil for his own good purposes. God had sent Joseph ahead of them to Egypt for the preservation of many lives, including their own. You know, 
nothing is more important than what we believe about God. All of our actions and attitudes are a reflection of our theology. Joseph told his brothers to hurry back to their father, tell him he was alive and was Lord over all Egypt, and to come to Egypt without delay. Joseph forgave his brothers and invited them to Egypt because he understood that God's good plan plan was behind all the pain he'd suffered. So that brings us very quickly to our third and final principle today. When we have our theology right, as Joseph did, when we have our theology right, we can forgive those who've hurt us. It's important we don't think of theology as just an academic discipline that's of little value to our hearts. While theology is the study of God in all his works, the end goal of this study is changed behavior. The entire book of Romans is just one example. What we believe about God affects our behavior every single day, whether we realize it or not. Joseph believed God's plan superseded any plans his brothers had made. He understood God to be so powerful, so involved, and so loving that no difficulty could come upon him without God's approval. He believed God would, in the words of Romans 8.28, work all things together for his good. Now, I've read this story over and over many times through the years, and yet I've never stopped being moved by this scene, particularly in chapter 45, Joseph's revelation of himself. And then one day it hit me. This is more than just a good story. This is my story. I relate to this story, and that's why I'm so moved. You see, I am one of the brothers. As a sinner, I've betrayed my God. Nevertheless, he sent his beloved son ahead of me so I wouldn't be destitute. His son suffered for me and is now exalted as Lord of all and lives to intercede for me. His beloved son has exposed my guilt and invited me, as Joseph invited his brothers, to draw close. He now talks with me, and he sent me to gather the others and not leave them behind. They don't know his story yet, but I'm to tell them. Furthermore, he's told me not to bother with all my current possessions, since all of heaven is mine, and he's directed me to get along with my brothers and sisters as we make this pilgrimage, not to quarrel. You see, now that my guilt has been exposed, I'm tempted to blame others at times for the mess we've gotten ourselves into, the problems I see all around me. But then I'm reminded, my older brother forgave me a great debt I also need to be forgiving. Yes, we're in a mess. But with my theology straight, I see that God is bigger.
What does your hesitancy or unwillingness to forgive others say to them about the way you view God? It may take a great deal of grace and humility on your part to forgive someone who's hurt you. If we don't know God's power and his love, if we don't understand that he transcends everything, we will spend our lives feeling the need to defend ourselves. But once we grasp that God is in charge and that his plans are good, we no longer have to do that. We can simply rest and wait for him who's already exalted his son and has told us, humble yourselves therefore under my mighty hand that I may lift you up in due time. Thank you.